She bangs, she bangs. Marriage, adultery, Texas, and Jesus. A totally spiritual, equally foul-mouthed podcast about marriage, mistresses, and possibilities. I'm your host, Jennifer Bangs. This podcast is about the season of my life, which included marriage, kids, and infidelity. Up to this point in the story, my husband was the only one who'd done the cheating. While he had been away playing Johnny Appleseed, I stayed faithful and prayed for a miracle that my husband would come home. During this time, a group of like-minded, broken-hearted wives and I started a club called IGTS. I'm going through shit. We were desperate for stories of people who'd fought for their marriages alone and come out on the other side reconciled and happy. There weren't a lot of these stories in publication, so I told myself if I ever ended up with one, I'd write about it. Well, my husband did come home. So two years later, I finished my memoir waiting in a Russian hotel for the adoption finalization of a little girl named Yulia Dmitrievna Shavalova, whom we called Bibi. Though I knew there was nothing else to say about my reconciled marriage, I knew my story wasn't over yet. So I put the memoir aside and waited for a sign when it was time to publish. It was a weird feeling knowing this memoir was done, but that I needed to put it away for a while. I couldn't understand why, but at any rate, I shelved it. The next two years we spent back in my hometown in Texas. My husband James and my marriage started to unravel again, but I shoveled out mountains of patience and hope because I was not going to destroy a second family for our daughter. As my spirit did a deep dive into depression, musical theater buoyed me afloat. I just finished playing Nancy and Oliver and was dragged to a callback for Rent at the same theater. It was not a show I had any intention of doing because in no way could I sing rock, but I must have pulled some magical notes out of my ass because I left that audition feeling like maybe, just maybe, I'd gotten the part. So, let the show continue, grab a glass of whiskey, and welcome to Iggett, Episode 7, From Wife to Mistress. Tiger in a cage can never see the sun. This diva needs her stage, baby. Let's have fun. You are the one I choose. Folks would kill to fill your shoes. You like the limelight too now, baby. So be mine and don't waste my time. Crying, honey bear, are you still my, my, my baby? Take me forward. do if they offer you the part my husband asked that first night after the callbacks i don't know i answered probably accept the role and not tell anyone i was fine with gay men but i never put a lot of thought into gay women i didn't know any gay women they tend not to swarm the stages of musical theater but here i was considering not only playing one but kissing one and flashing my ass on stage in texas where my mom and dad and hundreds of conservative southerny friends lived. Well, 
I was offered the part and accepted it, but told no one. I tried not to freak out over the sexual ramifications of what I was about to do, not to mention the fact I had never belted a note in my entire life. This theater had just come back from New York City and not found a Maureen, but they were confident I could play her? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I was flattered, but scared out of my mind. To this day, Rent is the most pivotal show of my life. I did get on that stage and kiss a woman. And I did get on that stage and flash my white ass to thousands of theater goers. And I did stand backstage every night wearing a motorcycle helmet before making my grand entrance, trying to convince everyone I was a leather-wearing, alphabet-city-squatting, bisexual performing artist who didn't give a shit about what anyone thought. I stood backstage feeling my heart nearly pound out of my chest every night. Because there are certain characters and certain characteristics you cannot fake. And you cannot fake being a badass. And Maureen was a badass. Adina Menzel originated the role and then went on to originate Alphaba and Wicked and Princess What's-Her-Face and Frozen. So, yeah, I was terrified. I never really understood Rent's importance when it first was donned by Broadway in the mid-90s. But now, I started to see what had resonated with so many people when they saw it. Acceptance. Rent is a show about young riffraff the ones unfit for society, the gay ones, the HIV ones, the poor ones, or the rebellious, the ones that are other, different. And yet, they love each other. They support each other. And I will tell you, every night I stood on that stage, I felt a more holy presence than I have ever felt in any church service I have ever attended before. I'd look out into the audience and see people crying because maybe for the first time in their life, they were seeing themselves represented on stage. And we weren't demonizing them. We were humanizing them. And we were celebrating them. And I realized this show was closer to Jesus and its message of love and acceptance than any show I'd ever seen. That show took shame and smashed it on its face. The girl who played our Mimi had done it on Broadway. She told me about the letters she'd received in New York City. She told me about one from a girl who said after seeing that show, she decided not to kill herself. God. That show rattled what I thought about life and arts and performing. That show took my southern roots and ripped them out of the earth and planted them in new soil. I felt freer and more excited about life. Terrified, but excited. Much like sex is to a virgin. And though I was no virgin, the show challenged me to explore who I was as a sexual creature. I was playing a character who was completely, indelicately unencumbered, and though I did not identify with her in this regard one bit, I'm not going to lie. I liked the comments I'd get from playing her. I liked being called sexy. I liked trying to portray someone who felt sexy. I wasn't awesome at it, often feeling like Jamie Lee Curtis in True Lies, the homely housewife bumping her way through a striptease. But I tried my best to look and act like a kick-ass femme and fool others with my confident badassdom I must have done because it was here in Rent that the wheels of sexual liberation and the temptations of my own adulterous heart began to turn. His name was Bruce, and I met him at a gas station on my way to rehearsal one day. At this point, I dyed my hair black and wore it wavy and crazy, I was doing serious squats to get my tuchus in gear for a live reveal, and, well, yeah, I exuded an energy of awesomeness, I guess. It was raining that day, and as I stood at my car pumping gas, it started to hail. 
The guy on the other side of the pump made some remark about the crazy weather, and we stood there for a few minutes waiting for the hail to stop. As we waited, I told him I was doing a show down the road and invited him. I knew he wouldn't come. He did. After the show, we exchanged numbers and started texting. Bruce was a pharmaceutical rep who occasionally traveled the area. He'd gotten married over a year ago, but his wife had taken a job out of state the very day after they married. It was only to be a short job, but she kept extending it. Bruce loved her, but they'd never spent one day together as a married couple. But who cares, right? Why should I care about this guy's marriage? I didn't know him. But the more time and texts that passed, I got to find out Bruce's father was a preacher, meaning Bruce was a PK, a pastor's kid, a.k.a. my type. And my father had worked in pharmaceutical sales like Bruce. We were also only three months apart in age, so we had grown up in the same generation and culture and looked at life pretty similarly. And my spouse was such an asshole, and Bruce's spouse was MIA, that my defenses came down and my heart started percolating. He was cute. Very cute. Whenever he'd drive through the area, he'd call and we'd go to lunch. This happened maybe three or four times in the weeks I was doing rent. I knew I was smitten, but I also knew nothing was going to happen because, well, he didn't live here, and I had no interest in cheating on my husband. And I don't think Bruce had any interest in cheating on his wife either. I just liked the attention, and I think he liked having a face he could look forward to seeing every week. Bruce's sales territory eventually changed, and he drove off into the sunset. Nothing ever happened between us. We never touched, never kissed, never even exchanged a spoken interest in each other. We both had dedications to our spouses, flimsy or not. The show closed and I found myself back at home with the kids, missing the exciting weeks I'd spent being something other than mommy. I missed rent. I missed the friendships. I missed feeling alive. A couple days passed and Bruce texted. I was excited to hear from him. His text was a little more flirtatious in nature. He asked what I liked in a man. Now, I had two kids and a husband of many years. I was very naive in the world of flirtation and phones. You don't really flirt on the phone when you've been with someone a long time, especially when that relationship started pre-smartphone. So I answered Bruce's question as to what I like with something about cuddling and feeling warm and safe or something along those lines. Bruce then texted me back, a picture of his large, hard cock. I almost dropped the phone. My son was behind me playing Legos, and my daughter was rummaging through cabinets finding pots and pans to bang. And I was standing in my kitchen staring at a giant penis. I texted something back like, uh, wow, um, great, I mean... I didn't really know what to say. I had no idea the norms of sexual etiquette. I quickly forwarded the picture to my best friend, Michelle, who, no offense to Michelle, has seen her fair share of dicks. This is huge, right? I mean, this is larger than normal, huh? My long-standing practice of never looking at a penis was coming back to bite me. Yes, Jennifer, Michelle laughed. That's pretty big, but more importantly, who sent that to you? And thus, it began. It started out super slow. No way was I going to counter with pictures of my lady parts. So I asked Michelle to come over and we locked ourselves in my room one day and played with lighting and angles and how to take a sexy picture. 
I sent off a few photos that night to Bruce, and he responded with more pictures of himself and some flavorful comments. It took quite a few weeks, but I soon became well-versed in the language of sexting. I now know men do not need great lighting or angles. The more graphic, the better. I learned that language should be rough and dirty, and you don't need to be Jane Austen in your prose. For all you ladies out there shaking their heads thinking I must be trashy, ask your man, he'll tell you. Men are pigs. They know it, and they like it. And for all you wives out there wanting to spice things up, pull out your damn phone and take a naughty picture of yourself and send it to your husband. It does not matter if you feel like it. It does not matter if you feel fat. Fat boobs are hot and hoo-hahs aren't fat, so you're good. Hold the phone above you and figure out how to crop or play with the color filters. Turn the flash off for God's sake and hit send. Better yet, send during your husband's next business meeting or right before some serious work thing. It'll fuck him up and he'll be thinking about you all day before he gets home. Sexting with Bruce was super fun and it was also a huge aphrodisiac. James would come home from work and I'd throw myself at him. My exploding desire for him affected him none. I felt deflated every night. But then Bruce would text the next day and I'd get to spend an hour or two in fantasy land being told how incredibly hot I was. Then one day after a few months, Bruce told me his wife was finally coming home. I was happy for him, but knew we'd have to end things. I had tried to convince myself they weren't really married since she'd been gone their entire marriage. But once she got back, I knew I couldn't keep sexting with Bruce. I'd like to say that there was a clean break between our sexts and her arrival, but there wasn't. I knew I'd feel guilty at some point. I kept waiting for it. I knew I couldn't be a Christian and not eventually feel guilty about Bruce and my fling. And one day, weeks later, lying on a massage table, I was hit with enormous guilt. I don't know if it was lying naked on a table, being rubbed, and knowing nothing was wrong about that, but that was my position when it hit me that what I'd done was wrong to Bruce's wife and their marriage, and it needed to end. I texted Bruce, and he understood, said it was the right thing to do, and that was that. It was over. The next day, I talked to an old friend I hadn't seen in years. He was a drummer I'd met many moons before at church in Texas. I told him I'd moved back to the area and had closed rent a few months before. Rent? He said. I wish you would have told me. I would have loved to have seen you in it. And wow, I didn't know you could sing like that. I have a cover band and we just lost our female singer. Would you want to audition? And in a matter of days, I was the new lead singer for cover band. A cover band covering bands called cover band. (laughs) I couldn't believe my fortune, and I couldn't believe God was rewarding me with such a sweet gig after having had a sexting affair for several months. I had been so afraid God was going to punish me, and here he was opening up an opportunity to rock out with one of my oldest friends, playing some good music and making a little money along the way. I learned a lot playing with cover band. All the guys there were about 10 years older, so they introduced me to classics I'd never heard before. I was also learning how to shed my musical theater instincts of interpreting a song and telling a story. That's not what rock music is about. I was growing as an artist and a performer and having a hell of a good time along the way. I knew someday I'd have to tell James about Bruce, but things were so rocky between us that I thought it best to put a pin in it until things were better and James could handle it with a modicum of humility. So 
I put aside that sinful, salacious sliver in time and focused on the music. I was getting to play a real-life rock star singing Pat Benatar, Bob Seger, and Gretchen Wilson. My marriage sucked, but this part was awesome. I felt awesome. She's totally committed to major independence, but she's a lady through and through. She gives them quite a battle, all that they can handle. She'll bruise some, she'll hurt some too. months passed, Bruce texted, and our sexting affair picked back up. I knew it was wrong, knew it, but it was too much of a temptation with the one-two punch of my erotic unfurling and the disinterested husband. I still prayed, I still held out hope that something would change in my marriage, that James would come back to Jesus and come back to the man I'd said yes to on that sunset cruise. But since Bruce and I weren't having an emotional affair, I mean, we rarely communicated about personal stuff and never talked on the phone. And since Bruce and I weren't having a physical affair, we never even laid a hand on each other when we actually could. I told myself it wasn't all that bad. Bruce didn't want a relationship with me. His wife was home and he loved her. And I didn't want a relationship with him. It was just nice to be wanted. But Bruce and I had created something in our spouses' respective absences that was too hard to put away. Bruce texted one day that he was flying in town to attend a pro football game with his dad. His dad was flying in from a different city and would arrive about four hours after Bruce did. Bruce was going to have a few hours by himself in a hotel room. And he wanted to know, would I want to meet him there? Okay. I had not seen that coming. I never thought I'd see Bruce again. I told myself I'd never cheat on my husband because I knew how much it hurt being betrayed like that. But getting to do all the things Bruce and I had talked about for months? The guy was damn sexy. I knew it'd probably never rise to the level of fantasy we'd been playing out, but I found myself considering doing something I never in a trillion years thought I'd do. I told Bruce to give me a few days to think about it. I got in my car and drove to the parking lot of a Hobby Lobby behind our house. In retrospect, I realized the irony of parking in front of a Christian retail store to contemplate cheating on my husband. I called my good friend Irene. I needed to talk to someone who understood what I was going through. Irene had cheated on her husband about a year before. They had reconciled, but we had spent many nights talking about her affair. Now it was my turn. I told Irene what was going on. Here's what she said. Jennifer, I'm not going to tell you not to meet up with Bruce. In fact, I say do meet up with him. But do not think that you can meet this man in a hotel room and then be able to walk away unscathed. He may get under your skin, and you may not want him there. I remained silent for a long time, letting her words sink, settle, burrow in. He's hot, I said, but I don't want a relationship with this guy, and I certainly don't want to get hung up on him. 
I drove home, my stomach in knots, but knowing by morning they'd be untied. And they were. I texted Bruce. I won't be meeting with you, I said. I hope you and your dad have a great trip. I then RSVP'd to a boat party my friends were taking out on Lake Louisville the day Bruce was arriving. I would be on a party boat in the middle of a big-ass lake, physically unable to change my mind. And Bruce came, and he went, and I did not see him. In fact, I think he probably was a little glad. We could keep the fantasy going and not lead each other into sticky waters. Our sexting continued. I go to parties with my husband and think about sex the whole time. I had never been a flirt. Remember, I didn't know how to do that growing up. But I had missed the whole point of flirting. Sex. And now it was constantly on my mind, and it was so fine to finally have unlocked this whole unspoken language going on below the surface of every conversation between a man and woman of relative age. I never knew. I never knew how so many conversations were dripping with sex. It was a whole new world. No, I'm not going to bust out the song from Aladdin. One day I was driving home by myself, racing down Highway 114, and Bruce sexted. I grinned and shifted my body, angling the phone. My heart started to burn, a telltale sign that I'm doing something really, really wrong. I felt a voice inside me screaming, Do not send! Do not send! Do not send! Never in my life have I felt more convicted, more deafened by an inner voice warning me, pleading with me, telling me that what I'm about to do is very, very terrible. I shoved the voice down as hard as I could, took the picture, and hit send. Error. Damn it! I tried again. Error. What the hell? I took another picture. Error. Still not going through. What in the world? The voice continued to shout, Do not do this! Do not do this! I slammed the voice down even harder and continued to hit send until my phone sang the glorious delivery chime. Yes! It went through. The voice inside me got quiet. Then, silent. I pulled in the garage and before walking in the door, did a quick hop step back before turning the knob. I knew never to walk in the door when James was home before erasing every single sext and photo from my phone. But this time I thought, actually, no, I want to keep these. I have a phone lock. It'll be fine. Two days later, James and I went to a 1920s themed party my mom friend who sold fetish toys was throwing. I met her in my five-year-old son's kindergarten class. That's right. My son's kindergarten class was full of Texas moms gobbling up Sierra's kinky wares. Halfway through the party, I whispered to my husband, let's go outside to your car. 20 minutes later, we walked back into the party. Sierra winked at me. She knew what was up. It was fun. We got home later that night, put the kids to bed, and strangely sat on our bedroom floor, the two of us, the moonlight pouring in through the window. It had been an unusually good night. As we sit there winding down from the evening, James asks me if there's anything I want to tell him. Uh, no. (laughs) What are you talking about? I just want to know if there's anything you want to tell me, Jen. I laugh. No. You sure? Yes, James, I'm sure. He lets it go. Then, no, Jen, no. I know you're lying to me. (laughs) What? James, I'm not. Then give me your phone. I hand him my phone, thanking the Lord I'd remember to erase Bruce's messages earlier that evening. James opens my phone, scrolls through, and then gets a defeated look on his face. He looks at me again, his eyes pleading and sad. 
I feel a tinge of guilt, but I will not cop to anything. No way. I'm going to get away with this. James continues. Jen, is there anything you want to tell me? Oh my God, James, no. How many times do I have to say it? He then screams, Jen, I know about the pictures. I know about the texts. I saw them two days ago. You've been so protective of your phone, and the other night you put it down and walked away, and I got in before it locked. I've seen it all, Jen. I know you're sexing this guy, Bruce. I looked him up on Facebook, and his wife went to the same college as me. Does she know about this? I wonder how Bruce would like it if his wife knew what he was texting you. James then jumps up from the floor and bolts to his computer. No, James, I plead. No, please don't tell her. You don't need to fuck up their marriage just because you're mad. Please let them be. James pulls Bruce's wife's Facebook account up, and as I'm screaming at him, pleading with him, do not do this. My kids must have the worst hearing in the world. I do not know how they didn't hear us. James starts to message her, then stops. He then pulls up Bruce's Facebook account and messages him instead. Bruce messages back, please not to tell his wife that it would destroy her, to please leave them alone and that nothing ever happened between us. James has calmed down and he storms back to our room and shuts the door. I sleep in the guest bedroom, alone. morning James goes to work doesn't say a word I find out months later that he has emailed his parents telling them what I've done and I find out months later he's also emailed my parents too I get a call from a friend who used to be my singles pastor at a church I attended in Texas after college you will find single pastors in mega churches churches so large that the congregation will divide itself into various groups for socializing purposes there's the newlywed group, the families with children group, the retired age group, the divorced group, and the singles group. Sometimes in really big churches, you'll even get singles groups for 20 to 35, 35 to 50, and then 50 plus. This is where I had met my first great love, Joseph, who at the time was straddling the 35-year-old line and we'd all give him a hard time about moving up. A man named Wayne Reed was the singles pastor for the younger group Joseph and I were in. Anyway, now years later, I'd reached out to Wayne when James and I first moved back to the area and our families had spent time together. 
Wayne knew how James had left me and cheated on me and how I'd fought for him to come back. James had taken a special place in Wayne's heart. And so James had also called Wayne and told him what I'd done. Wayne, not one to mince words, laid into me. Jennifer, you will never send pictures like that again. Do you hear? That is never going to happen again. Never. Do you understand me? And by golly, I had so much respect and love for this man who was only four years my senior that I snapped to. Wayne was one of the most honest and humble men I knew, and his words came down on me like a weight. Any sinful embers left were flattened by his call. I won't. I promised Wayne. I promise. I will never do that again. James told me I needed help and ordered me to counseling. I was to start the next week, and I would go weekly. He also told me he'd be filing for divorce. I mean, okay, I get it, but at the same time, like, what the fuck? I knew I'd be wasting my breath trying to explain to James why I did what I did. I never wanted to hear excuses why he cheated on me, but I mean, yes, I cheated. Well, not really. I mean, come on. You're going to file for divorce over this? This? Sexting is not the same as having actual sex with someone, but there was no use arguing over it. James felt perfectly justified in equating his actual sexual encounters with multiple partners over a two-year period to my five months of sexting with a dude. But bigger than my serious feeling of injustice was the sickening despair I felt in the pit of my stomach over my affair. Not because I felt guilty for hurting James. Fuck James. He'd been horrible to me for years but because I had destroyed my valiant fight to win my husband home. I walked around depressed for weeks. All those years, wasted, over a traveling salesman I met at a gas station. I asked him ever so demurely one day, James, if I can forgive you for what you've done, why can't you forgive me? Because, Jenny said, I just don't possess that kind of love that you do. It was a simple answer. <laughs> but honest. He was right. He didn't have that kind of love I possessed because my love was supernatural. I had to daily tap into a higher power in order to forgive and love my husband like I had. But he didn't believe in that higher power with oceans of grace to give, so James didn't access it and James couldn't offer it. I went to the therapist like my husband demanded. I hoped me going would soften James's regard toward me, and every week, the therapist could never quite understand why I was there. Because my husband told me I have a problem with fidelity. Well, do you, the therapist would ask? No, I'd say. Have you reached out to Bruce this week? No. Are you tempted to? No. Look, I don't have a sex addiction or cheating problem. I fucked up, but this encounter doesn't define who I've been for the last five years fighting for my marriage. I'm sorry I did what I did, but it's not going to happen again. I'm never going to sex that guy again. The therapist believed me. I spent the next several weeks paying him a hundred bucks to tell me nothing. The holidays were approaching and James said he would file after the holidays. Great, I thought. Merry Christmas to me. I continued to pray. I continued to fight for my marriage, but it was different now. I no longer had the spiritual upper hand. I kept my mouth shut even more, hoped for a miracle. Hoped that all the years of kindness I'd shown James would be remembered. Over time, I started to hear a phrase forming in my head. It started out in bits and pieces and culminated into a phrase. Let it go. Let it die. 
move forward. The sentiment was echoed in the current presidential campaign, forward. Four years before, the word in his campaign had been hope, and the day he was elected was the day James had come home. Now the word was forward. As this phrase, let it go, let it die, move forward, continued on repeat in my head, I found myself one afternoon on the Japanese rug of our bedroom, curled into a fetal position as I considered for the first time ever if God was telling me to let my marriage go, let my marriage die and move forward. I didn't know, but the consideration gutted me as I questioned if I was being told to let my family die, to let this thing I had poured every drop of my soul into die. To accept not only defeat, but to accept that the tears I'd shed and the wounds I'd endured and the sacrifices I'd made would all be for naught. That my marriage was over. That my children would suffer. I shriveled into a ball at this consideration and cried like I'd never cried before. I started to hear lyrics to a song, Dare You to Move by Switchfoot. I looked up the lyrics. They made no sense. Then, over the next few weeks, I started to hear something else. I started to sense that at the beginning of the next year, something was going to change. That at the top of the new year, something was going to shift. I assumed this meant James was either going to file or have a huge character change and become an awesome partner. I didn't really see there being another option. My marriage is over, I thought, or it's going to get better. But something is going to happen in the next couple months. November passed. Then December. And as January was knocking at our door, sitting in my closet one day organizing my shoes, James came in and sat on the floor next to me. Jennifer, I want to tell you something. I do not want to divorce you. I want to make this work. He smiled. He looked happy. He looked hopeful. I'd never seen that look in his eyes before. I smiled. We were gonna be okay. We were gonna be okay. Yes! Merry fucking Christmas to me! I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own, more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. Oh, baby, all I want for Christmas is you. You, baby. Oh. And oh, how I wish my story ended there. Oh, how I wish. But little did I know my relationship with Bruce was child's play considering what or who was right around the corner. Tune in next episode, episode eight, Robert. This is She Bangs, She Bangs, Marriage, Adultery, Texas, and Jesus. Find me on Twitter at Jennifer Bangs or SheBangsSheBangs.com. Cheers, until next time. <laughs>